So, yeah, we're going to jump back into the book of Esther. I want to just start by asking, have you ever met somebody and, and maybe spent a significant amount of time with them and then found out later that they claimed to be a Christian and you were like totally shocked? Anybody ever had that experience? You're like, whoa, didn't like, didn't see that coming. Like what, what I'd seen over here did not lead me to think that that, that was going to be uh, you know, your choice. Anybody ever had somebody like that where you, you met them, you spent some time with them, you saw how they presented themselves, you saw how they lived their life, and then they come out and say, oh, yeah, I'm a, I'm a Jesus follower. And you're like, I don't know if we're talking about the same Jesus, right? Like, taking you in a different direction, evidently. And so you, you start to wonder, anybody like that? We're going to see a couple uh, as the story kind of, the plot thickens, and we get into kind of the, the bigger part of the narrative in this book of Esther. We're going to see a couple of folks that, that kind of have that as a part of their story. We're going to see God redeem them as we move throughout the book of Esther, and we're going to see that, that kind of turn. But for now, we need to own uh, who they are and not over, like, religious eyes this story, right? So what we want to do a lot of times, we read the Bible and we want to find heroes. We want to go, okay, well, we, we want to find out how we can be like Esther, how we can be, and, and we want to try to make them into heroes. And the reality is, they're not, like, none of the characters in the, in the biblical stories are heroes in and of themselves. God is the hero of the story, and there's not some good people and some bad people. There's, like, Jesus and then everybody else, right? Um, and so we just want to keep that in mind and make sure we're not trying to over-romanticize parts of the story. We need to own the fact that, the, that Mordecai and Esther, as we meet them today, are, are very much far from the Lord, and, and this is not a part of God's plan. So we need to know that going in and, uh, and just, um, it, just feel the rest of the story. This is a, very much a, a story. As we've said, uh, we introduced the book the last couple of weeks. It's a, mo- it's a remarkable book, the most unique book in the Bible, in that God's name is not mentioned, um, not even referenced. And, and so it, it's curious, right? This is God's book, and yet his name is not mentioned. And so you have to kind of go with the author of this book. That, that's not accidental. I think there's an invitation there to look deeper and to see what he's trying to communicate. And this is actually a, a story not about what it looks like when God's people are faithful and doing what God has called them to do and how he interacts with them, but rather what it looks like when God's people have completely just forgot about him and don't really care, don't have any concerns about him, and what does that do to God's promises, right? Is God absent or um, non-involved you know, in those situations, or, or is he causing them, and what's his role? And that's very much the, the purpose of the book of Esther, is to give us a glimpse into what, what exactly is going on whenever the, the culture is rapidly secularized, and even the, the the Christians, right, the, the people of God or the Jews in this story, even whenever they've assimilated so far into the culture that they don't look any different, you begin to wonder, wh- where's God? What, what's the plan? How is this going to shake out? Is he, and, and sometimes we can begin to wonder, like, is this thing spinning out of control on God, right? Has he, has, as, as, you know, is he playing catch up with the way the world has gone? And this is a, a story that just reminds us that it is never true, right? God's plans will not be thwarted. His purposes will not be brought to an end by anybody but himself. Even when we make a mess of it, even when we're not concerned about him, he will accomplish what he has set out to accomplish. And so that's it's very much what's going on in the story. But this is a real-life story that happens in the historical period whenever the, the Persian Empire was at its, its peak. And so if you study history, you know <clears throat> that for a, a big part of it, in, in fact, what led the people of God into exile? Babylon was kind of the, the, the world power, and then <clears throat> they got overtaken by Persia and King Cyrus. And then, uh, and then we have the heir to the throne, 
Xerxes, who is mentioned in this story as Ahasuerus, and that is the same guy. That's, that's the historical Xerxes, the great that we've heard of from our history books. And so this is a story that's taking place in his kingdom. So we saw in the first chapter, he's throwing this huge party. He's got all of his government officials, his army leaders there, and he's, he's launching a campaign into Greece. Uh, and, and that's kind of that's kind of why he's throwing the party, but we see some other drama take place, and that kind of catches us up to where we are today. So if you would, we're going to read through this and talk through it. So have your Bible back open or your app or however you see the scriptures. We want to invite you to be walking along with us here. Um, and so back in chapter 2, verse 1, it says, After these things, those things are the, the party and everything that happened in, in verse 1, when the anger of King Xerxes, or Ahasuerus, had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. So what's he talking about? If you weren't here for that or you haven't read this story, uh, he got mad and deposed or took his wife, Vashti, took her throne away because she told him no. Because she told him no in front of his friends. Hurt his feelings, got him embarrassed. He took her throne. Um, She told him no because he was wrong. Right? If you remember the story, like, this is not just a, an example of her just not being submissive and not wanting, no. No, the guy was, a, was being a pig, and she said no. And so out of a, a reaction of pride, he quickly said, well, then you are no longer queen, and we don't know exactly what happened to her, if she was killed or just kind of uh, removed and sort of exiled. But, but either way, um, this is what happened. He divorces her, says you're no longer queen. And so after these things, so what we have is actually, so it says, after his anger abated, well, how long did that take? Like a day or two or, you know, a couple hours? Then think about when you have a fight with your spouse. How long does it take for you to kind of come back to your senses? After You know, we all have those moments where we say things we don't mean. We do things we, we shouldn't have done. And then we, we kind of, uh, our emotions fade away and we realize how big of an idiot we were. Anybody else have moments like that? How long does it take you? Day, two, week, month, whatever? This guy took four years. Four years. Between throwing his fit, taking her throne, and this verse where it says his anger abated. So what had he been doing? Well, he launched his campaign into Greece. Right? So he takes her throne. He, he has this campaign. They're going to take over. Again, this guy's ruling most of the known world at this time, mostly except for Greece, and he can't stand it. He's so driven by what he doesn't have. Right? That was kind of a sermon or two ago. But so driven by what he doesn't have that he can't stand it. He has to launch his bid into Greece, and he gets his butt whooped. Right? This is the historical account of the Battle of Thermopylae, wherever the Greek soldiers, when he rolls in and tells them, hey, we're here to take over and you're going to need to surrender your weapons. And as accounted in some books and movies, they say, ah, you're going to need to come and take them. Right? And it doesn't go well. Xerxes gets his butt whooped by an incredible Greek army of Spartans. Right? We, we know about the Spartans. We, we, we have that come and take them. Some of you have that over your gun safe or whatever. We, we have. That, this comes from this this story, this narrative. So, goes off to Greece, gets his butt whooped, comes back uh, sulking and upset, and now he misses his wife, right? His life is a mess, and he misses his wife. Anybody else? Like, that's so common in our culture. Life's a wreck, not going well. We don't know what our purpose is. We're super depressed, and so many people think that the answer is a relationship. I need a man or I need a woman, right? And we make we're prone to make really bad decisions in those moments, aren't we? Because no, we, we, we'll lay our, 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 you know, the principles and the things that we'd set up before when we were really sober-minded about the kind of person we wanted to spend our life with. And all of a sudden, when we get desperate and life's not going well, we are prone to make decisions that we regret later, right? Because we think 
that that person will fulfill us and fix our problems. We, we go to our uh, future husband, spouse, girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever, and we give them the, do- the job description of, of God, right? We ask them to fix our life, to make us, you know, whole again, to meet our every need. And, and it's a job that no human can do, right? It's impossible. They don't need a man or a woman. Xerxes doesn't need a new wife. He needs God. Is that what he's going to do, though? No. Misses his wife. Once again, runs to the counsel of some young men. Quick tip, as I said last week, not the best source of counsel. You want to go to some older dudes that got some years under them. Uh, he goes to these young guys, and they're like, hey, we got this really good idea. Let's do the Bachelor Persia edition. Literally, like this is what they say, hey, let's go get a bunch of beautiful young virgins. Be, let them be sought out for the king. Let the king appoint officers go into all the provinces of his kingdom and gather all the young beautiful virgins to a harem in Susa the Citadel where he is under the custody of, hey, guy, this guy's eunuch. And if you weren't here and you're like, is that what I think it is? And yes, it is eunuch. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. But um, so they bring him into this charge of this guy and, and let their cosmetics be given them. And whoever pleases the king the most, let her become the new king. So this is literally what is proposed is, hey, let's go into all these provinces. And again, he's, he's ruling most of the known world, like 127 provinces at this time. And he says, let men go into all of that realm and gather all the beautiful women and bring them back for this massive contest to compete for the queen's throne. Right. So listen, I want you to feel the weight of this. This is a story we can get removed and kind of romanticize. We've seen it in books. And we kind of, maybe we think of it like Cinderella, right? When he's going to all the kingdom and finding the, the, who's going to fit, whose foot fits the glass slipper. And it's this, no, this is not that kind of story. This is more like get all of the women and we're going to herd them like cattle into this um, situation and, and make sure that they meet our, our standards and do everything that he wants them to do and then see who um, gets to be the new queen. So I want, you to, I want you to feel the humanity of this. I want you to feel what's happening in this moment. We, he's literally taken all of the beautiful, young, unmarried women. First of all, feel the rejection of if you don't get picked, right? So if you're there, your sister goes, you don't. Like on one hand, you're grateful. On the other hand, you feel totally dejected, right? That you didn't make the cut. So feel that humanity. And then secondly, think about the, the daughters that are taken from their Moms and dads, think about the, the young lovers that are taken from their future spouses, right? They're not getting to pick their spouse anymore. They're not getting to uh, be with the person that they want to be with. Instead, they're going to be forced into this contest. It's not like if they don't become queen, they get to go back to their life. No, they don't become queen. And it says later on, we see uh, that they just go back into the king's harem. And if he ever remembers them and wants them again for a night, he'll call them. If not, that's where they spend the rest of their life. This is a horrible moment. You need to feel the weight of that. This is a horrible, horrible moment. But he agrees to it. The king thinks it's a good idea. This pleased the king. Verse 4, so they did so. Now, verse 5, there was a Jew in Susa whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, son of Shammai, son of Kish, the Benjamite. This is all important. Who had car- been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives uh, carried away with Jeconiah, the king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had carried away. So we need to just first, that line that says, now there was a Jew in Susa. We need to stop there and ask the question, why? Why? Were they supposed to be there? Were Jews supposed to be in Susa? No. They weren't. 
So what had happened, God, if you read the Old Testament, you see that God says, this whole world's a mess, and I'm going to bring redemption through this people. I'm going to make a covenant with this people. Abraham, you're going to start it, and it's going to be this massive group of people. And through this group of people, I'm going to bless all of the earth. And so God starts this process, and he gives them the promised land. You may know some of these stories. And, and, he, and he promises them, hey, you do what I, you live life the way I tell you to live. It's going to go really, really well for you. I'll be your God. You'll be my people, and you will flourish. It'll be awesome. Come and I'm going to make this covenant with you. So God does that. We know about the story of Exodus, him bringing them out into this land. They, they grow into this huge country. They bring, God brings them into the promised land. They don't trust him. There's all of these stories and miracles. Uh, and, and eventually they get there, right? Eventually they get to the promised land, and they flourish for, for many years, and they start to make a mess of things because they don't obey God, right? They, they fail to do what God had laid out for them. And so God did exactly what he said he would do. If you fail to do this, then I, I'm going to punish you, and you're going to be brought Back into captivity. I brought you out of Egypt. You were in captivity. You know what that was like. 400 years of being slaves. Brought you out of that. If you obey me and follow me, this will go really well. You disobey. You start intermarrying with people that worship other gods. You start moving away from the, my way of life. Then I'm going to have to punish you. And we're gonna, I'm going to allow another kingdom to come in and conquer you. And that's what happens with Babylon. They come and conquer Jerusalem. And they take its people captive. The book of Daniel outlines a lot of this for us in, in the Bible. And so that's what happens. And for several, for, uh, I don't know, a few hundred years, they're in captivity with Babylon. And then, as I said, the shift happens where Persia takes over Babylon. And when Cyrus takes over this kingdom, he is commended by God as actually being a decent man and a, and a decent king. And he says, hey, I don't want you all to be, I don't want people to be held against their will. You can go back to your homeland. So he gives permission. He gives a decree, actually, that all the Jews and other people can go back to their, their original land and their cities and rebuild their, their churches, their temples, their way of life. You're, you're fine. You're still under Persian rule, but you can do life your way. And so many do that. Actually, some do that. Many. And so that's what happens in Ezra and Nehemiah. You can read about the people who actually go back to Jerusalem and begin to re- rebuild the the temple and begin to rebuild the wall, but does everybody go back? No. And that's where we have our story. So, if, Jess, if you pull up that map, you, you can see that in the, the Persian Empire is all that is in, in green there, and it's basically, as I said, the known world. And they were taken originally to Babylon, which was the, you know, the, the empire that took, took them into captivity originally. You could see Jerusalem down by the Mediterranean Sea. This is where God's presence is, where his people are supposed to dwell. They get taken into Babylon. The decree goes out. They can all go back home. You notice, where does Mordecai and his family go? They go the opposite way to Susa. So they're not even like on their way back to Jerusalem. They go the opposite way. Why? Well, first of all, their faith is no longer like a genuine thing that matters in their life. And Susa is, from all historical accounts, the richest, most flourishing city in the world to that day. And so there's promise of of an extravagantly prosperous life in the city of Susa. So they decide, instead of going back to Jerusalem, again, that's a hard sell. That city's in ruins. we got to rebuild that mess. It's a definite fixer-upper back in Jerusalem, right? So that's a hard sell. But... We're going to look at this in a minute because it matters. They instead go to Susa. Now, here's, here's the first point. I want you to feel the weight of this. And Mordecai raises Esther, and we'll get into that in just a minute. We'll kind of blaze through the rest of the story. But this is the first point. When our faith becomes just a cultural thing, a box we check, um, 
a choice we claim, yeah, I'm a Christian, right? When it becomes a cultural or national or just, you know, identity thing that we say, yeah, I mean, you know, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not an atheist, you know, I fall into the big broad category of Christian. When it becomes like that, instead of a genuine personal faith, there are huge consequences. And I don't think that it's actually all on Mordecai or Esther that they're here, and we're going to see that, like, what happens in the story is, is pretty tragic. And I wouldn't put it all on them because they've been, like, it gave two generations prior to Mordecai. So I'm going to put it more on his grandpa and his dad and their family that slowly their faith in God, their identity as the people of God had diminished. And it was just a thing that they claimed. Right? Yeah, it's my national identity. It's more of a rate, almost an ethnic thing than it is a, a personal, this is how I live my life thing. We can see that uh, the people here, they're, they're no longer living by the dietary laws that the Jewish people are commanded to live by. They're no longer uh, following the, the temple practices that God had put in place for them. And listen, so the first thing, whenever our, cult, whenever our Christianity, our faith becomes just a cultural thing that we claim instead of a personal, genuine thing that drives the way we live, the first implication we see is that we no longer have a concern for God's presence. We no longer have a concern for God's presence. It's just, it's okay. Like, we just want to live a good life. We just want to have a good, prosperous life. And, you know, we'll go to church. We'll, we'll claim the, that box. But, like, that's about it, right? We no longer have a concern for God's presence. I want you to think about the implications for these people. Like, we're used to, like, God is, is all around us, and we can meet with him anywhere. In this day and age, that's not the case. Jerusalem is literally where God dwelt, right? The temple is where God dwelt. His people came to the temple to be near him, to worship him. He, Jesus had not made atonement for sins. All sinners could not have the Holy Spirit dwelling in their body like we do in their, in their lives like we do today. And so the, God's presence dwelt in the temple, in the Holy of Holies, and that was the call of God's people to be in his presence, to be near him. That's the whole movement of the scriptures is God coming to be near his people because that's how we were made to experience life, right? We are made by God to experience life to the fullest and joy in his presence. And so for these people to go the other way shows a blatant disregard and a lack of concern to even be near God's presence. I want you to think about that in your own life. For them, it's geographical, right? That they literally go a different direction because God's presence over here, they, they go here. But for us, man, it's just, it's a lot more subtle, isn't it? When we become just unconcerned about God's presence, it's more about our time, right? We're not concerned about whether we, we spend time with God in prayer or in his word. We're not as concerned if we make it to church regularly. We're not as concerned if, if we have, you know, family devotion. We're not as concerned if any of this translates into our, our life. We're not as concerned if this looks totally different to our kids than what we do at home and how we act at home. We're, we're not as concerned about that because it's just the thing we do, right? We're just sort of going through the motions. And, that, and I would say, actually, um, that's one of the other implications that we'll get to in a minute. But let's keep going in the story, because I think there's more implications whenever our faith just becomes cultural and not genuine and personal. There's more implications. And I would say the second shows up in how Mordecai handles this deal. Because, so Mordecai, he adopts his cousin. So his uncle um, has, uncle has this daughter named Esther. And they some say it's on the journey to Susa that his 
that her mom and dad die. Others say that they were killed when Nebuchadnezzar took the, I, I, think they were, I think they died on the journey, but that all that really doesn't matter. But basically, she becomes an orphan, and Mordecai is her older cousin, and he takes her in as his own. It's to be commended. He does a good thing. He adopts his younger cousin, raises her as his daughter, and, and they are now in Susa, in this capital, he's actually working uh, for the king at the castle, and this is their life. And so this decree goes out now where Xerxes is going to go get all the pretty girls and bring them in for this incredibly disgusting contest. All right, so this happens. Verse 7, he was bringing up Hadassah, that is Esther. She's got a, a Persian name, a Greek name, um, and a Jewish name. Uh, the, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother, the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. So she's going to get picked, right? When her father and mother died, Mordecai took her as her own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in the custody of Haggai, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in the custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. So um, this is not like volunteer, night with the king, maybe I'll get to be queen. The scripture seems to lean toward this was not a voluntary situation. I don't know that they necessarily forced them, but like if you, you try to say no to this guy, we see from history that you say no to Xerxes and you're like, like it's just, it's, it's done, right? So she's taken in to captivity. She's taken in to this process, right? Now some, I'm sure, romanticize it. Some, I'm sure, we're, we're excited about that opportunity, but you think about this, young women in their, in their late teens, maybe early teens, but, but late teens, early 20s perhaps, being taken. I want you to imagine government officials coming to your home and saying, I need your daughter. I got three of them, y'all. I got three girls. Could you imagine that? She's taken into custody by this king to go enter this thing. Verse 9. Actually, before we get to verse 9, I think the second implication is when, we, when our faith becomes just a cultural thing and not a personal and genuine thing, we, we lack the courage to stand up against evil. Because listen, Mordecai does a good thing by adopting Esther. But listen, not the only, like, there's sins of commission where we do what we're not supposed to do, but there's also sins of omission where we fail to do what we should do. And in this moment, men, you should do something. Right? You should do something. I asked my daughters, I said, I told them a little bit of the story. I said, what would you do if that, that happened in our day? Like, what would, what would happen? And they're like, I don't know. I would be scared. I would hate that. I said, what do you think daddy would do? And one of them said, he'd find that dude and shoot him. And I was like, that's right. That's absolutely right. Right? Going down, swinging on that deal. You're not taking my daughter into this disgusting place to sleep with this, to lose her virginity to this perverted king who's having one girl after another each night. And, and then maybe she gets to be queen. And even if so, that's not a great deal. But if not, she just goes to live the rest of her life in a harem. You're not taking my daughter into that without going over my dead body, right? Like men, when, when, when our faith is not informing our actions, we lack the courage to stand up to evil. And this is what we see from Mordecai. He's totally passive, much like Adam was in, in Genesis 3, where he just lets it happen. Now, We'll see in the next few verses that he's worried about her, right? He's concerned. The young woman pleased him and won his favor and he quickly provided her with, uh, this is talking about Esther and the, you know, Haggai, the guy who's kind of running the, he's in charge of the, of the, of the show, if you will. So she wins his favor. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But Esther didn't make known her kindred 
uh, didn't make known that she was a Jew, basically, because Mordecai told her not to. And every day, Mordecai walked in in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. So was he worried about her? Yeah. Yeah, he was, to his credit. Absolutely, he was. He's walking every day, checking in, concerned, worried about what's happening to her. But does he do anything? No. Doesn't stand up and, and say no. Third thing, when our faith becomes cultural and not genuine and personal, is we just begin to go with the flow of culture. Just begin to go with the flow. God had been really clear to his people, hey, you're going to be set apart. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. You're going to live life differently. You're going to say no to some things, but that's so I can say yes to some even better things, and you're going to be different. You're going to be a kingdom of priests. You're going to be a blessing, a witness to my glory, my goodness amongst all the people. Jesus says something similar in John 17. He says, God, I'm praying for these people because my, my followers, they're going to be in the world, but they're not going to be of the world. And they're sent into the world for a mission to be salt and the light and tell the world of me. But, so they're going to be in the world. The world's evil, but they're not of the There's something distinct, right? You've heard that if you've been around church for a long time. And a lot of times we draw the line to, 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 from that to we start making some weird rules about how we dress, what we say, and what movies we watch and what we don't drink. And we, we have this weird Christian subculture thing about like how we in the world but not of the world. And that means we wear our own t-shirts and listen to our own you know, music. And, and those things aren't necessarily bad, but sometimes when we define this is what God meant by discipleship and, and in the world, not of the world, like we get messed up. But I will say this, on the, like, that's not our church generally. I think we can probably get in trouble by going too far the other way, right? Our, like our church is probably known for, for we're not, like, we don't believe the Bible condemns alcohol, so you may, you will, you, spoiler alert, you may see one of our members out and about having a glass of wine or a beer. We don't believe it's a sin. Other churches in town, other people, are, they do. However, and I think we can go too far the other way where we don't become too free and we're not concerned about holiness anymore. And actually, we're going to hear a little bit more about what that looks like next week, but we're not concerned about that anymore because we're just leaning on our liberty and our, our, our license because God forgives. And, you know, so we kind of rebel against the religious sometimes and we become our own sinful camp, whereas this is not right either. But in the world, not of the world, is talking about like there's a distinction in how we act. There are some things we say no to. There are some ways we live our life that are vastly different than the rest of the world. And whenever we, our Christianity just becomes a cultural thing, not a personal, genuine thing, we start to go with the flow of, cultural, of, of the culture. We no longer say no to things we should be saying no to. And that's what we see from Esther. She seems to be taken against her will, but she seems to participate right alongside of everybody else. In fact, she becomes the front runner immediately. Not only is she gorgeous, she also has a good personality. Right? It's rare that a woman can be, like, be that pretty. All the dudes like her, but for all the women to like her too, that just doesn't happen that much, right? She's got such a good personality that everybody's a fan of Esther. But what we can see is she starts, she takes the cosmetic. So they put him through this beauty regiment for a, 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 a year, right? Certain oil, spices, perfumes, body treatments, certain diets. And for them, that is not to slim them up. That is actually to put some meat on their bones. Because in this day, being really skinny meant you were probably poor and you didn't have food to eat. So the king don't want any of that, so they're giving them a diet, proteins and fats to, to kind of, you know, put some meat on their bones, and, and they're going through this whole process so they can look their best, make up all of that stuff whenever they go into the king. It's a 12-month spa treatment situation. 
for them? Did they enjoy it? No, it's so they can be paraded around, right? So they can be brought in one after the other like a cattle going to, to auction, right? That's the process, but she seems to go along with it. Mordecai goes along with it. That's what happens when our Christianity becomes just a cultural thing and not a personal and genuine thing. So, verse 10, he tells her, don't tell anybody you're a Jew. Verse 12, now when the turn came for each young woman to go into the king, uh, king Ahasuerus after being 12 months under the regulations of women, talked about that just a little bit, let's, let's skip to uh, verse 13, when the, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take from her, from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in the custody of Shazgaz, that's another rapper, I think, the king's eunuch who was in charge of the concubine. She would not go into the king again unless the king delighted in her and he was summoned by her. So she gets one night. All these women, 12 months preparation. It's your turn. Go in. Take whatever you want. Try to please the, queen, the king. Good luck. And we don't know what they do in there, but they go in at night, come out in the morning, right? Like we can probably connect those dots. This is scandalous. This is disgusting. But whoever performs the best, the king likes them, Whoever's the best, they get to be the winner, they get to be the queen. And then if you don't, like I said, you're just rolling over to the other side of the building and you get to live in this harm for the rest of your life. And if he ever remembers you, oh, hey, yeah, so-and-so, I really like that night, then he can call on you, you get another night with this charmer. But if not, just living your life in a harm. Never married, never kids, right? This is, this is what's happening in this moment. Verse 15, when the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken as his own daughter, to go into the king. She asked for nothing except for what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the women, advised. So this guy is running the show, and he favors Esther. Everybody likes Esther. And so he says, hey, he kind of pulls her aside. Hey, this is what the king likes. This is what the king likes. This is what you should do. Don't take all that jewelry. Don't take all that stuff. No. King, like, you're a natural beauty. Go in like this. It'll go well for you. So she takes his advice. It says, Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And verse 16, and when Esther was taken into King Ahasuerus, into his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women, and she won the grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. And this guy likes to throw parties. Right? We're, we're not even two chapters in. This is like number three, and they're just going to keep coming. This guy, big party thrower. He also granted a remission of taxes. That's good news, right? To the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. So we see that she just, they go along with it. Now, here's the deal. It's not that, like, Mordecai and Esther both have some admirable qualities about them. It's not that they become these monsters of, you know, just the sinful rebellion. Again, Mordecai adopts his cousin. Esther, she's genuine. She's good with people. She's not, like, hokey. Like, there's, there's good things about this, both of these individuals. It's, it's not that they just become these monsters. But, and, and honestly, it's easy to justify their behavior, Right? It's easy to justify what they went through because you could say, well, if they oppose the king, if Mordecai doesn't let her go, then what will happen? Well, they'll probably kill him and take her anyway, right? 
And then you could say for her, well, if she doesn't go through the motions, if she refuses to go into this process, then she'll probably be killed as well, right? Like we, 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 we can justify there was imminent danger and risk if they said no. But I want to ask you this question, like, it, wouldn't it be better? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be, like, here's the deal. If that happens to me, I, I go down fighting, they arrest me, put me in jail, and I'm suffering there because I didn't let my girls go without a fight, and they end up still going. But I hear from jail a few months later that they died because they refused to participate in that mess. I'm a proud dad. I'm a proud dad in that moment. And you could say, man, would you rather your daughter die? Than... Man, we need to count the cost of what God has called us to. We need to count the cost of the direction of our life. And I, don't want, I, want, to, I want to think about that. And I want to know, like, yeah, I would actually be proud if they refused to participate in that and they lost it. Like, I would be proud of them. I'd be a proud dad. So here's the deal. Like, it, it's, it's possible for us to be a good person by the culture standard, standards and still be far from God and even in direct rebellion against him. And listen, some of you are like, man, this is why people don't want to be Christian, right? Like, you guys are just never satisfied. Listen, I want to say, the point of the gospel is that God wants to be near us. He wants to provide us with the abundant life that we crave, the one that we're pursuing and chasing whenever we go after the things of this world. He doesn't call us away from those things just to be a buzzkill, right? I always say, God's not ever trying to steal from you. He's trying to lead us to life, right? He's a good father directing his kids away from danger and towards safety and fulfillment. And you say, well... That, that's just the world we live in, right? Like, we can't help it. Like, some of these things are just going to happen. We can't say no to everything. We can't live. Like, but here, here's the deal. God knows the world is evil. He knows that. He's not surprised by that. In fact, that's why he's done the work of drawing near to us to save us. He's inviting us to live life in his way and trust in his provision. And, and you might say, yeah, but if we do everything the Bible, if we, if we say no to everything that the Bible warns against, then we're going to miss out on a lot. And, and, and that's just not realistic. And I would say that actually the Bible offers the opposite reality before us, like that Jesus very much is a paradoxical call of laying down our life and picking up our cross, much like the call of, hey, go back to Jerusalem and build the city back so that we can enjoy God's presence or go to Susa and flourish, right, and have prosperity. It's very much like that when Jesus calls us to come to him. We're looking at things of this world. We're looking at things we're going to have to give up, and it seems like we're losing out, but the reality is we have so much more to gain because Jesus, he, he says to the woman at the well, I'm going to give you water to drink that will satisfy you so deeply that you'll never thirst again. What he's talking about is our, our hearts, our souls are made for eternity. They're made for God's presence, and until we are restored back into that relationship with him, there's going to be this empty longing. We see this in Xerxes, who's got everything, and yet he's not satisfied, right? So God's not saying, hey, don't do this, live like this, don't sleep with that person, don't do... He's not doing all that just to be a buzzkill and take... He's doing that to lead us into life. I'll put it this way. How many of us have ever wished that we could see, we could see personally some of the miracles of the Bible? You ever thought that? Man, if I could have saw that, if I could have been there for that, man. And maybe even attach it to like, then I'd believe, or then I'd do this, right? Some of the stories like Joseph. Or Daniel, hey, particularly Daniel. I'd invite you to actually read the book of Daniel and lay it in parallel to the book of Esther. There's some really interesting um, parallels there. But when you think about Daniel, think about the, his, his, his boys in the fiery furnace, right? You think about the lion's den. Well, those moments don't happen unless they say no to a man that is just as powerful as Xerxes. Those moments happen because 
Nebuchadnezzar says, hey, go get me some young men that will really serve well and put them on this certain diet. And then and, and Daniel and his friends say, ain't doing it. God says no to those things, and so I'm saying no to those things. Well, Nebuchadnezzar says you have to. Too bad. I obey God, not Nebuchadnezzar. And God's like, are you going to get killed? Daniel says, hey, I dare you. Just give us a few weeks, and if we don't look healthier and better than the other guys, then you can, you can kill us. You do what you want. And God, God shows up in those moments, right? And, and then later, he says, hey, if you don't pray to Nebuchadnezzar, or different guy then, I think it's Cyrus, then, you know, you're going to be killed. And, and we see them put in the fiery furnace. We, and, and, and there's these amazing stories that we celebrate God's provision, but they don't happen unless these men and women stand up and say no to these authorities of the world, right? So when you look at Zech, uh, Mordecai and Esther and you want to justify their behavior, I would say, no, the Bible actually invites us to a life of faith where we follow God even if it means losing our life. We see that from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And, and Daniel, they say, listen, dude, I ain't worshiping you. And I believe my God's going to save us. And even if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, my reward is better. And you can kiss off. Right? So Mordecai and Esther miss out on an opportunity to see God work through them and not just in spite of them. Because you would say, well, we're, we're reading about Esther and she's kind of a hero like in the Bible. And I would say, yeah, God's plan is not thwarted and he still works in spite of them, right? And in the background, he's still controlling his, his purposes are not going to be thwarted by our idiot, idiocy or our cowardness. But, but listen, we're missing out on an opportunity for God to work through us instead of in spite of us. Don't we want to have some of those stories where, where we stood up for faith Right? And the world was going, man, there's just no way. And this is real. I don't have time to talk a ton about this, but even as I was doing research, and I joked about it being the Bachelor of Persia, well, some of you may know that the Bachelorette right now made some really interesting statements about her faith in Christianity. Right? Where she was ridiculed by another dude on the show for having sex, and she basically said, yeah, I've had sex, and Jesus still loves me, and basically I can keep doing it. Now, listen. If you've committed sin of any kind, yes, Jesus still loves you and he will forgive you, but he invites us, those women, the woman caught in adultery, what does he say? Hey, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more, right? Like Paul says, we don't just presume upon God's grace and and just keep sinning so that grace can abound all the more. No, no, no. When we're called and rescued by God, like we have a new life and new desires, and that's the kind of people, that's the kind of statements that make me wonder, like, that's what the world is hearing about Christianity. She's very confident in what Christianity is, and she's very clear that people that think that she can't continue to have premarital sex with whoever she wants and make her feel bad about that, that they don't understand Christianity. She's very bold in that statement. I remember sitting at a FCA leaders table as a sophomore in high school. This is FCA leaders. This is not just like, hey, come get out of class. These are, these are the ones that the coaches and everybody have picked. It's like, hey, these are the most genuine, leader, or genuine Christians from each grade. I remember sitting at that table and us talking about sex and like three of them looking at me going, you're not really going to wait till you're married, are you? These were the FCA leaders. I got mocked. You're not re- They're like, no. That'll, just give it time, Jordan. That, that, that won't last. That's the kind of world our kids are living in. So we need to think about, it's kind of world you guys grew up in, you, you get it. But we, here's the deal. We need to think about where the trajectory of our life is headed. Because if we have become comfortable and it's just a cultural Christianity thing, we need to think about the implications of where our lives are headed and where the lives of our kids are headed. Because it's going to take more than just morality and conservative values 
for your kids to have the courage to say no to something when everybody else is doing it. It's going to take more than just morality and conservative values to stick with a marriage that gets really hard. It's going to take more than just, you know, going to church and claiming Christianity for us and our kids to avoid the evils of this world. Mordecai and Esther belong back in Jerusalem in the presence of their God. Instead, they're here, caught up in this mess, and in a lot of ways going along with it. So lastly, when our faith is cultural, not genuine, we miss out on God working through us. We've got to count the cost of where our lives are headed. We've got to look ahead at the trajectory and go, okay, this is how I'm living my life. This is what I'm putting before my children is that going to hold weight when they get to college? Is that going to hold weight when they start dating? Is that going to hold weight when the drugs get passed? When they, like, you got to think about these things. Have we shown them a genuine faith? Have we taught them that Jesus is enough, that he is better, he will provide? His commands are good and not just a buzzkill. Have we, have we wrestled through those things? Do they see us live lives of repentance? Do they see us having joy in coming to church? Or is it a chore? What are we putting before our children And what is it going to lead to? Listen, one of the most haunting verses is in Judges, whenever it says, and then there arose a generation who did not know the Lord. That's on the the parents. Deuteronomy was really clear. Hey, you need to talk about this all the time. It's not just bring them to the priest, let them hear a sermon. Or in your case, bring them to, let them hear a sermon. No, no. Take them to journey kids, let them hear that. No, talk about it all the time. When you wake up, when you lay down, when you leave your house, when you come back home, all the time. When you're on your way. This is on us, church. And, and Esther paints a, a picture. Yes, God's victorious, but God's people go through some mess in the meantime. And I don't think we want that to be our kids. Just real simply, like, would you want your kids to participate in The Bachelor or The Bachelorette? Probably not, right? That's some debauchery. It's entertaining to me, but, like, we need to think about the consequences of us watching it then. And what message that's saying to our kids. So there are some things that we need to say no to. I put an article on your app on this weekend that, that talks about swimming up current um, against the culture and still being a part of the culture. It talks a little bit about clothing toward the end, but just the principles in general, I would encourage you to, to read this week. But we need to think about how Jesus has called us to live. And here's, here's the deal. As we, as, we, as we leave, here's the good news. The good news is there's grace. There's grace. Because this is actually all of our stories. We're all supposed to be near to God. We're all supposed to be worshipers of God. And the Bible says we've all ran the other way. We've all fell short. We've all rebelled. And we're all separated from him. The good news is he comes. Jesus came. Entered into our world. He lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserved to die. And he gave us the victory that only he deserved to have. That's salvation. The Bible says if you believe in your heart, Jesus is the Lord. You confess with your mouth, believe in your heart that Jesus is the Lord, that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. Like that kind of freedom we were talking about earlier where our shame is undone, our, our chains are undone, and our, our, our shame is, is gone, or we're set free. That happens when we run to Jesus, not when we do better, try harder, start living better. No, no, we run to Jesus as our Savior. That's the good news. So if you've kind of backslid into just doing the motions, you're not, you're not concerned about God's presence. You, you know that you haven't been standing up against evil whenever it, it's been presented. You know that you're just going with the flow of culture. You know that you're missing out on God working through you and not in spite of you. Then I invite you to come and repent today. Come and, and, 
and just lay before Jesus and say, I want to have that kind of story where you work in and through me, Lord. Let's pray. God, help us. We need you. Grateful that we have you, that we don't have to wonder if you're coming. You scream out your faithfulness right here in this table that we just observed where you gave your life. So, Jesus, would you come and, and break the chains of the captives this morning and move in us, give us faith, give us hope and healing as we, your people, set in your presence through this last song. We worship you, God. Move in us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.